This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to Property Patter. My name is Emma Humphreys and I'm joined today by Richard Flenley and Emma Priest from our Real Estate Disputes team. We're looking today at recovering arrears, both in relation to commercial property and residential property. Of course, sometimes premises will be a mix of the two elements and then it will be necessary to assess how the property should be treated for the purposes of complying with legislation. But let's start with some basics. Richard, now that the September 2020 quarter has been and gone, we've had further restrictions announced on statutory demands and forfeiture. So it'd be helpful for our listeners, I think, if you could summarise the current restrictions. Let's start with Kra. Yeah, of course. No problem. I mean, as a result of the uh, coronavirus pandemic, the government stepped in in the spring to bring about a raft of temporary measures uh, to protect the position of tenants of both residential and commercial uh, property. These uh, protections broadly applied to the ability of landlords to forfeit leases, uh, to use other, the other main self-help remedy of commercial rent arrears recovery, and also uh, to use insolvency procedures. As regards CRA, uh, this year has seen a range of regulations uh, implemented by government affecting the ability of landlords to exercise commercial rent arrears recovery, otherwise known as CRA. Um, it needs to be borne in mind uh, that CRA exists for commercial leases only and doesn't assist with the recovery of any other sums other than pure rent, so it doesn't include service charges, an example. The restrictions uh, basically mean um, that for enforcement notices given between the 25th of April and the 23rd of June, at least 90 days of rent arrears must be present uh, before CRA can be used. This was an increase from the usual seven days arrears. Um, then uh, the next raft of, of the change was that between the 24th of June and the 28th of September uh, this year, at least 189 days rent arrears had to be present. And then um, for enforcement notices given between the 29th of September and the 24th of December, that was increased to at least 276 days rent arrears. And then the final the final increase, the final uh, step in the road so far anyway, is that for enforcement notices given from the 25th of December onwards, at least 366 days rent arrears have to be present. Now, those um, rent arrears uh, minimums uh, effectively apply to both the service of enforcement notices and also to the first time on which the landlord seeks to try to take control of goods. And you know, as with a lot of the other legislation at the moment that's, uh, that's going around regarding um, restrictions and, and, and the ability of various different creditors to be able to enforce debts, uh, it is something that needs to be considered quite carefully and looked over quite carefully, because even though um, there is a 31st of December 2020 current end date to these restrictions, in effect, that, that means that CRA can't really be exercised until next April. Yeah, it's a long time away, isn't it, really? And in the meantime, so are statutory demands off the table as well? Yes, mostly. I'm, I appreciate that's a really typical answer from a lawyer. Um, but ultimately, the position as determined by the legislation brought out earlier in the summer, was that um, the presentation of winding up petitions um, has been restricted, such that no winding up petitions can be presented on or after the 27th of April 2020 that rely on an unpaid statutory demand served during what's termed as the relevant period. Um, no, uh, no winding up petitions um, 
are to be presented during that relevant period unless the creditor has reasonable grounds for believing that coronavirus has not had a financial effect on the company or that the company would have been unable to pay its debts even if coronavirus had not had a financial effect on the company. The tests there are pretty low threshold. And so it's likely that debtors and tenants are are likely to be able to overcome that argument relatively easily. The relevant period for this purpose uh, originally took us up to the end of September, um, but last month that was then extended to the end of December. So essentially where we are is a low threshold test for um, tenants to be able to avoid the presentation of winding up petitions. Statutory demands uh, technically can be served, but are clearly going to be of limited effect um, because they cannot then be used to found a winding up petition um, unless the reasonable grounds can be proven um, as discussed already. So landlords are going to have to think through very carefully uh, whether they want to serve statutory demands. Now, in some cases, they might think that um, service of a statutory demand is sensible because um, the risk or theoretical risk to tenant debtors is so significant such that it might force payment. But I think more and more tenants are going to have become wise to the possibilities of a landlord serving a statutory demand, but also the risks to the landlord in then actually trying to do anything with that statutory demand. It also should just be added Um, that to the extent that there is a petition presented during uh, the relevant period and the petition is still pending, if the petitioner cannot show reasonable grounds, then the court can make any order necessary to remedy that. That would include potentially setting aside the original statutory demand. So it is something that needs to be thought through very carefully. They are technically still in existence and usable, but I suspect the application of them will be severely reduced. So with forfeiture, I think we now have a divergence between the position with commercial and residential property. It's still off the table in relation to commercial leases until after 31st of December 2020. But Emma, the position isn't quite the same now with residential property. No, um, so we have got some movement actually on that. So the stay on possession was lifted on the 20th of September, which means that the courts will now start to deal with what I'm sure is quite a large backlog um, of possession claims. So for claims that had already been filed and issued, but then stayed under the legislation that was, well, the Coronavirus Act, which came into place in March, um, the claimant will need to file a reactivation notice and then serve a copy of this on the tenant. So the purpose of this notice is to update the court simply that possession is still required, the tenant still remains in occupation. Um, if there's rent arrears, they're also um, obliged to provide an updated rent arrears statement for the last two years as well. And they're also obliged to, to inform the court if they're aware of what uh, effect the pandemic has had on the tenant if they have this information. Um, so there's also been some changes to the notice periods in, if a residential possession too. Um, So for landlords who now want to start the possession process. um, So for Section 21 notices, which are those notices where the landlord simply requires possession of the property, um, there's no tenant breach. um, A landlord can serve those, but they must give six months notice. Um, So this came into place on the 29th of August this year, and that applies until the 31st of March next year. 
For Section 8 notices, which is when the tenant is in breach of a term of the tenancy, these can be served as well, um, but the usual notice periods have been amended. The majority of the grounds relied upon um, have been extended up to six months, which brings it in line with the Section 21 notice position. But there's some exceptions to this, um, including rent arrears, which is possibly going to be the most commonly relied upon ground. Um, so it is six months notice for rent arrears, unless uh, the rent arrears are up to six months, in which case you can give four weeks notice. Um, there's some other grounds as well there's a, where there's a slightly shorter notice period. So you have to check the legislation on that point and just see which, which grounds you can rely upon. And Richard, of course, there are some additional hurdles for long leasehold residential tenancies. If a landlord wants to pursue action to recover ground rent there from a tenant, um, perhaps you'd just remind listeners about those. Yeah, of course, no problem. Um, uh, for long residential leases, and here we're talking of leases of more than 21 years, um, the tenant um, is not, uh, because of the application of Section 166 of the Common Hold and Leasehold Reform Act uh, 2002, liable to pay the rent. Um, unless uh, with a notice, and the notice must be in the prescribed form. It must specify uh, the amount of the payment that is due. Um, it must specify the date, being a date not less than 30 days, nor more than 60 days from the date of the notice on which the tenant will become liable for payment. And if the uh, date upon which um, the 30 and 60 day period applies to effectively provides for a different date to the date on which the rent would otherwise be due under the lease. It also needs to specify what date that would have been under the lease. Once that notice has been served, then the tenant becomes liable. So there is an extra step in the road, um, if you like, before the landlord um, can actually start to take enforcement action relating to ground rent liabilities. It's important, though, um, to bear in mind that this it does not apply to service charges or administration charges. Um, it's also um, important to bear in mind that the due date under the notice can't be before the due date in the contract. Having established the liability um, for rent, proceedings can then be brought by the landlord for the recovery of the debt, plus interests and costs. And where available under the terms of the lease, also for forfeiture, or alternatively for forfeiture, provided that the rent arrears are at least £350 in amount, or, or if they are less than £350, that they have been outstanding for more than three years. Um, in these circumstances, it seems that landlords may well go for forfeiture rather than debt recovery proceedings, given that mortgage lenders will often pay the arrears rather than risk losing their security. And if the lease is forfeit, um, this potentially results in a sizable windfall for the landlord, given the value of long leasehold interests in the market. Oh, thanks for that, Richard. Sounds nice and straightforward. Um, <laughs> so if we think about recovering arrears, Emma, what options do landlords have available at this time, particularly thinking about action that may not involve formal action, if you were to mean steps that recover arrears without the kind of formal court process? Yeah, so um, there are some, um, not a huge amount of options. Um, and also these largely depend on the structure of the lease and the security it obtained at the outset of, of the lease being entered into. So, for example, if you've got a rent deposit, then the landlord can look to make a drawdown on the deposit. Uh, landlord should review the terms of this and check it, it covers the arrears. Um, owed by the tenant, which it almost always will for rent. Landlords should also check if they've got any notice requirements that they need to comply with under the terms of the deed. Um, so they may need to notify the tenant and give them a certain period of time before they make a withdrawal. 
Um, and at the same time, some deeds will oblige the tenant to then top up the deposit back to the balance it was originally. So they can check the position on those. If there's a guarantor, um, this is another option that's available. Usually the guarantor will have equal liability um, under the lease to that of the tenant, subject to any restrictions on the guarantee or limitations. If there is any agreement reached with the tenant regarding rent arrears, then the landlord should make sure that the guarantor is also um, signed up to that agreement too. Where we've got former tenants and former guarantors, um, the position here is slightly more complicated, but this may be an option that's available too. Um, it depends on whether we're dealing with an old tenancy, which is a pre 1st of January 1996 tenancy or a new one, which is entered into after that date. So in the case of an old tenancy, the landlord can look to pursue the original tenant and depending on the wording of the lease, sometimes also the original guarantor um, for a current tenant's arrears by serving what's known as a Section 17 notice. For new tenancies, so those um, after 1st of January 1996, um, outgoing tenants and guarantors will be released on assignment, but they can still be pursued if they covenanted to perform the future tenants' obligations under what's known as an authorised guarantee agreement, um, sometimes just referred to as an AGA. What's key in either scenario is that the Section 17 notice is served within six months of the arrears falling due, um, otherwise the landlord will lose this route of enforcement. So it's quite important that landlords keep on top of the arrears and obviously move quite swiftly um, if this option is available to them. So if these options aren't available to a landlord or if the relevant third party doesn't pay, landlords may now be looking to court proceedings, of course, to try to recover the sums owed, especially if they haven't been paid since March. Richard, I've picked out some favourite FAQs that I've had in the last six months from some of our clients and contacts. So I thought that might be a good way to ask you about the option of court proceedings. So question one, is it worth trying to get a CCJ if I think my tenant is about to go into administration? Thanks. I mean, if the tenant is genuinely about to go into administration, it may be too late to go down the road of obtaining a CCJ. Um, it's really an appraisal of risk and the timeline involved. Um, if there is time to get one, then it might still worth be pursuing to help crystallise the value of the liability when proving for the debt and the administration. However, because administration brings with it its own moratorium, preventing legal proceedings from being pursued without either the, the approval of the court or the administrator's consent, um, that, that might be a, a bit of a, a problem for landlords. Um, it, in that sense, it's probably sensible for landlords to also look at their other enforcement options, as Emma's just discussed, um, and see whether or not um, obtaining the CCJ really is, is is the best approach. And we should say for any listeners that don't know, of course, the CCJ is a county court judgment. Um, another question I've had, question two, can we go for a high court judgment if we claim for arrears? Uh, potentially, is the answer to this one. You oh, that's such a lawyer's answer. Come on, I, Richard. Uh, it's perfect, isn't it? <laughs> Um, can't for arrears claims of £100,000 or less. Um, all those claims have to be commenced in the county court. Where they are over £100,000, the High Court will then determine whether or not they consider the case to be suitable for a High Court hearing. But even if it is a county court judgment that is obtained, it is often still possible to transfer those up to the High Court for enforcement purposes. Um, so um, fear not that particular questioner. Um, even if even if it is a judgment in the in the county court, it's still a judgment that can be enforced, and there are still routes to enforcement. 
And my third and final FAQ on the subject of court proceedings for arrears, um, how, and the key one really, how quickly am I likely to get a judgment? Well, I'd love to be able to give a really easy answer to this question as well. Um, unfortunately, um, the delays caused by the current pandemic um, have made that a much less certain uh, answer um, than would have been the case beforehand. Um, the court system, as we know, is beset by a, an enormous amount of delay at the moment. But once the proceedings are commenced, what we do know, and the, the rules on this have not changed, um, is that the uh, the tenant defendant would only have 14 days from service of those proceedings to respond with an acknowledgement. Um, if the acknowledgement of service is filed, they then have 28 days to, to provide their defence from the original date of service. If those dates are missed by the tenant, then the landlord can apply for a default judgment, which could bring a swift end to the proceedings subject to enforcement. Um, if, however, the tenant does respond, um, then it may well be possible for the landlord to try to bring an early end to the proceedings by applying for summary judgment. This is essentially um, an application to prove that the tenant has no reasonable prospect of successfully defending the proceedings. This is still likely to take a, a little while. It might still be a number of months, but it's likely to be much quicker and more cost effective um, than full proceedings with disclosure of documents, exchange of evidence before, before a trial that could be many months away. Once judgment has been obtained, it's still going to be necessary to enforce it, though, unless the tenant does, pays voluntarily. Um, this, as uh, I alluded to in the previous uh, question, um, could be approached by a high court enforcement agents. Um, this is particularly something that could be thought about and used if the tenant's premises have reopened um, since the uh, the height of the lockdown period. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, as you say, it's, it's just very variable, isn't it, between the courts? We've had some judgments through actually amazingly quickly. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think absolutely. perhaps residential presentation proceedings, having not been able to go through the county court, certainly during lockdown, as it were, actually led to a surprising amount of efficiency. Um, but now that things are kicking off a bit, probably on that side again, it will be interesting to see how that affects timetabling, won't it? Absolutely. And of course, some of the sums owed will be service charges rather than rent. Emma, are there any restrictions on the recovery of service charges from commercial tenants at this time? Um, so no specific service charge restrictions as such, but because the same methods of recovery of rent also apply to the recovery of service charge, save for commercial rent arrears recovery, which is just rent and not service charge, as Richard mentioned, if there's any restrictions on those at the moment, they will also apply to service charge. So mainly forfeiture, um, which whilst this is something explored usually in the context of a non-payment of rent, um, the legislation uh, specifies it applies to any sum payable under the lease so that applies to service charge as well so that is the position at the moment yeah i mean i think the um the one thing i would probably add um just in relation to service charges is obviously one of the things that um the government was very keen on doing was trying to help the relationship between landlords and tenants um generally um during the the financial difficulties caused by the pandemic um that in in turn led to the the publication of a code effectively trying to um assist uh, the relationship between landlords and tenants um that provides for a number of different things um it differentiates between for example rent liabilities um and also then service charge and insurance payment liabilities um certainly from a from the government code perspective, um, the expectation was that service charges and insurance should still be met um, where possible. But obviously, that's all down to a, a, 
a calculation in essence of of where the um where the financial position of the of the tenant business is if they don't even have enough money to fund the service charge liability then that's still going to be a problem yeah that's right isn't it i mean it does boil down to the reality of the situation i thought the government kind of guidance in the code about service charges uh, on that point was quite helpful, uh, you know, in terms of if parties are having discussions, sort of having somebody to say, well, I think this is where the starting point should be. But as you say, the reality is it's going to depend on the relevant parties' positions, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And Emma, what about the outstanding service charges that may be owed under residential long leases? Um, can you talk us through the options here? Yeah, sure. Um, so when dealing with residential, it's uh, notoriously more complicated than commercial generally, and that's no difference when it comes to residential service charge. So first, just initial compliance points to check uh, before we then look at options. So the demand issued, um, it needs to make sure it complies with the lease requirements. Um, the amount demanded must be reasonable in terms of quantum. Um, and the landlord must ensure that when they serve the demand, that it was sent with a summary of rights and obligations in relation to service charges. This is in a prescribed form. Uh, one further point to, for landlords to keep in mind in the residential context, and it's quite a key one, is that uh, the costs are not recoverable if they were incurred more than 18 months ago. Um, so again, something to keep in mind. Um, so if all of that is in order, um, the period for payment has passed and then the land tenant still hasn't paid, that is when the landlord can then look at the options in terms of uh, taking it to the next stage. So the landlord can seek to forfeit the lease, which Richard has touched upon already. Um, there are more steps to be followed. Um, it starts with the landlord seeking a determination that the monies are actually due. Um, that can be pursued either at the first tier tribunal or the court, unless the tenant admits that the charge is due, although that's that's quite unlikely. Um, unless that claim is defended, um, provided all the paperwork in order is in order, then it's likely that either the tribunal or the court will order that the monies are due and owing to the landlord. That's step one. Um, once the landlord has that order, they then need to serve it with the section 146 notice, which is step two. If the sums then continue to remain unpaid, um, the tenant will be given then a further opportunity to pay and to comply with the notice. Um, so if they don't then comply with that, step three is to then um, go back to court again and uh, commence forfeiture proceedings based on the section 146 notice. So if the landlord is ultimately successful, this will result in the return of the property to the landlord. So um, it, is a, it could be a significant windfall that, that Richard said earlier. Um, however, if the claim is defended at that point, it's likely to be transferred back to the tribunal who will then look at determining the service charge element of the claim. So it's quite a um, it's quite a process. It certainly is. Well, thanks for that, Emma um, and Richard. Thanks very much for the overview uh, and the useful reminder of the current position with landlords' remedies, um, and of course how the approaches differ depending on whether you're dealing with a commercial lease or a residential lease. As I mentioned at the start, the position won't always be clear cut on that front if you're dealing with a mixed use property. So our listeners should tread carefully with those. Thank you to those of you who have joined us to listen. And please remember that bite-sized summaries of the remedies we've discussed today are available on the surveyor's refresher area of our website. And if you'd like access to that area, please just email any of us. In the meantime, take care and stay safe. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.